Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Valence Advisory and Mattermade. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hi, everybody. This is Arjun Devarora, and I am the founder and managing partner at Valence Advisory. We support funds and founders and help them accelerate their efforts via people, strategy, and capital. Uh, and now off to Eli. Howdy, everybody. I am Eli Rubel. I am the founding partner at Mattermade. We're a roving B2B marketing org for Series A, Series B companies in the Valley. And today we are incredibly honored and excited to have Nina from Index Ventures join us. And without further ado, I will let her introduce herself. Well, Eli and Arjun, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Um, as you said, my name is Nina. I'm one of the partners at Index based in San Francisco. I've been in venture for about five years. I never really had plans, honestly, to be in VC. I started my career in finance, working as a trader, uh, doing trading high yield bonds. And then I really wanted to go into something more operational. So I joined Google. I worked on the AdSense team there in an FP&A role. And while I was at Google, I would constantly get inbound from a lot of international founders, especially in the Armenian community, because I'm originally Armenian, that really wanted help figuring out you know, how they could, for example, get an app approved on the Play Store and or how they could collect payments being in Armenia. And so I started to help them with some internal Google resources. And I was like, wow, some of these companies are amazing. I wish I could angel invest in them, but not everybody has millions of dollars at the age of 25 to do angel investing. And so I raised a small, very small seed fund to start investing in startup. And that's how I eventually got into VC. And now at Index, I focus a lot on Everything from you know seed all the way through growth stage, late stage companies, mainly focused on B2B and spend a lot of time on enterprise SaaS, vertical SaaS, and also the combination of voice and AI. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And as you started your career kind of at City uh, back in the day, when was maybe your first exposure to venture? Was it there at the trading desk or was it something that you came across much later? And, and uh, how did you know, kind of tell us a little bit more about the path into uh, your seat today? Yeah. To be honest, no, venture was not on my radar at all. But ironically, when I look back, there's actually a lot of similarities in being a trader and also being mm. a venture capitalist. Like oh, cool. one, you really have to put your money where your mouth is and actually make a trade. And that is for, you know, VCs investing in a company. And for traders, it's, you know, buying bonds or stocks in a particular company. Second, you usually have to make a decision in a very short period of time and sometimes not with perfect information. And so that's definitely true for early stage investing and even sometimes growth investing. Mm -hmm. And the third, you know, I think it's... um you really learn how to be humble when you could be right about fundamentals, right about the product, right about the market, but something else happens that's completely not related and, you know, impacts, let's say, your stock position, uh, you know, in the, in the public markets. And I think in VC, you also, you always have to remember that, you know, there's only so much that's in your control and there's only so much that's in a founder's control. And so just having that set of mind of knowing, hey, you know what, not everything is something that I can forecast, I think is is a very important lesson to have. So anyways, long story short, I, I really didn't have VC on my radar. But once I moved back to the Bay Area, where I originally grew up, I just started interacting with a lot more startups and founders. And Google, of course, had some great internal initiatives of selling, let's say, Google Cloud to startups. They had a team called the Sand Hill Road. And as I started to work with some of these founders outside of the US and helping them bridge the gap, between outside and inside the US, I started to think to myself, oh, there's some incredible opportunities to really 
help somebody get resources that they otherwise wouldn't. And that's how I originally fell in love with venture capital. And for you, what is it Yeah, about you know, falling in love with venture? And what is it that you enjoy? Kind of why, why venture? What is it that you love about you know, the business, I guess? <laughs> yeah, it's a very unique job. And it's, it's very different from any other job that I've ever done. Uh, the things that I absolutely love about it are first and foremost, you're constantly learning. And most of the time, in a particular subject matter, the person that's sitting across the table from you has spent orders of magnitude more time thinking about a particular problem or particular, you know, market or a particular dynamic or trend. And so just being able to absorb and learn from incredibly smart founders is probably one of the most exciting things. The second is just the opportunity to work with some of these incredible founders, right? It's not every day that you get somebody who comes into their office who has literally given up everything in their personal life, put their family house, you know, mortgage on the mm-hmm. line to really give their their full shot to something that they believe in. And that is just so addicting and so inspiring. And to be able to play a small part in those journeys is, is priceless. And then the third thing I would say, you know, I, I really love the ability to build long-term relationships. I mean, the analogy of marriage and dating and like, you know, when you pick a VC on your cap table, it's like getting married really actually holds true. I mean, you really have to develop personal relationships with founders. And that's something that's incredible because many of these individuals, they're so multifaceted and you just get to know them on a deeply personal level. Uh, so those three things I think are, are just incredible aspects of the job. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I'm curious. So jumping in on some of the behavioral side of things and, and how you make decisions, I'm curious what behavioral tipping points and maybe market signals are you really excited about these days? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people have talked about COVID. I'll mention it briefly, but I think some of these trends were happening even before. So what has happened in the last, let's say like three or four months is we've had a fast forward to a fully digital future, especially for, let's say, SMBs. So a lot of small businesses, they didn't have, let's say, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or, you know, the the latest, let's say, best tech, because a lot of people don't think about small businesses, but actually they're really the backbone of America, right? And so all of a sudden overnight, a lot of these businesses were thrust into a completely digital world. So whether you were a gym owner, a school owner, a plumber, a car mechanic, a hair salon business owner, all of a sudden you had to figure out how to run your business completely online. So we think one of the big trends has really been brought forward. Of course, it was happening already, like the replacement of pen and paper with you know mobile first and great customer experiences, even for small businesses. But I think that's something that's here to stay. And I think that you know finally, a lot of these small businesses will get the attention they deserve and have great tech built exactly for their needs. So that's one big thing that I've been really excited about. The second one I, I mentioned in the beginning is this idea of voice and AI. So, of course, I'm sure everybody on this call has uh, read of the GPT-3 advancements recently. And if you think about it as humans, despite having, you know, Slack, Google Hangouts, email, SMS, WhatsApp, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, the single most effective and efficient way to communicate is still through voice. I mean, every time, for example, you have a difficult conversation that you have to have or you know, you're, you're writing something on Slack and it's like, you know what, can I just call you and explain this over the phone? It's just the easiest way to get things done. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, if you layer on the ability to process information with voice, but then have also machine learning, 
where you're not only understanding that voice, but analyzing it, but making it searchable, you can imagine so many cool applications. Like next time you want to write a comment in a Google Doc and you're thinking 25 ways of how to write it without sounding passive aggressive, you could just leave like a voice comment and say, hey, you know, I really like this, but I think maybe what you were trying to say is X, Y, and Z, and there's no room for misinterpretation. So I think there's some really cool trends that were kind of happening and have been accelerated by COVID and are probably here here to stay for a while. Fewer instances of having to quickly hit the edit button on your Slack message and adjust for tone. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, following up on that, one of the questions I had for you is around figuring out the why now. Like on the COVID side, it makes sense. But maybe on, on this other side, on the voice and AI, I mean, AI certainly has been buzzy for a while now. So when you're looking at these opportunities, what pieces need to click to indicate to you that the why now is like satiated and, and ripe? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. We, we always ask that question when we do an investment pre-brief. We always have to make the case for why now. And sometimes it's not why right now. It's like why in five or seven years from now, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think for us, the things we look at is sometimes consumer behavior actually dictates what comes down the road in enterprise behavior, right? And we've all heard of like the consumerization of enterprise, but think about it. We had AIM like 20 years before Slack, mm-hmm. right? And like people were using AIM for pre- like talking to all your friends and then, you know, all of these things. And then it took that long to actually get like a Slack. And now we basically have AIM for businesses far better via Slack. And so I think with voice specifically, you know, we've been promised so much with like the Alexas and the Google Homes, and there's something like going to be a billion devices of these virtual assistants in every home, like a couple of years from now. But I think people have been promised a lot. I think things are getting better on voice. And I would imagine that once they really tip that inflection point where voice becomes your primary mode of interacting with technology, you'll start to demand that in the workplace. And so for us, like investing in that theme ahead of that is, is really compelling. So you're invested in, at least from what I can tell, a number of uh, companies that address kind of the trades and some more kind of old school, traditionally offline businesses, like you said. I'm curious what some patterns are that you see in founders and early executives who have like stumblings in their go-to-market, what are some of those early stumblings? And I guess, how do you coach them to avoid those and, and be in front of them? Yeah. So the knock on uh, a lot of those businesses I've invested in actually sell to small businesses. And in the past, as, as you guys know, traditionally people are like, oh my God, don't sell to SMBs, like sales cycles forever. Churn is super high. ASPs are super low. But really, actually, like the tide has changed and happy to talk about that, um, you know, uh, in, in a little bit. But some of the things we've seen that founders do really well to avoid some of those mistakes are one, incredible focus. So it can be really tempting to sell to many different types of customers, right? And that could either be different verticals and it could be different segments. So I think the first thing you have to do is really narrowly define your ideal customer profile and really figure out what the message is for that constituent. Because somebody who's running a business that makes a million dollars of top line versus 50K of top line, it's a very different value proposition, right? So I'd say that's number one. Number two, you have to have some domain expertise. It's very easy to come out, let's say, of like a great college as like a phenomenal engineer and say, well, I could build this product so much better. But unless you live and breathe the lives of your customer and really have that domain expertise, 
sometimes you might build a great product, but it's just not related to how they operate or their workflow or their mindset. So second is like making sure you constantly have domain expertise. And then the third thing I'd say is be absolutely obsessed with making your early customers successful. So a lot of our, a lot of founders we come across are all about accumulating a lot of customers quickly, especially like seed to series A, you want to try to get to that 1 million of ARR and it's kind of like a land grab for customers. But actually what we constantly tell our founders are make sure even if you have a small group of customers and it's just a small number, make sure they literally could not live without your product. And so put all your resources in making sure that they're successful. And I think that's probably, you know, something that is a lot easier said than done. That means sometimes like the founder picking up the phone call at 1 a.m., talking to the customer, going to meet with the customer in person so they don't churn, white glove service, but all those things pay off because those early customers become your strongest, you know, testimony for making, let's say, those types of customers successful and a great referral network can be built from that. So those are some of the early learnings, I'd say. That's great. Thank you. Um, And as you think about those teams, those early founding teams that are built to execute against what you just shared, what are you looking for that helps you understand that they have the ability to do that and and take that and run with it as well. So what do you look for in, in the founders and maybe the executive teams as they come to you at later stages uh, together around those, those areas and, and more? So one uh, I already mentioned, which is this domain expertise, right? Second one is crystal clear communication. You know, I think this goes across the board. If you're pitching a, an investor and five minutes has gone by and the investor still doesn't understand what you do, it's probably impossible to turn that pitch around at that stage. And so just being able to clearly articulate, even if you're building something that's extremely complex and difficult, simplifying it into a clear value proposition is really important. And then I'd say the third thing I spend a lot of time on is understanding people's motivation. You know, there's been so many stories of founders that stumbled in the dark for many years or, um, you know, like I said, put everything on the line when they had no idea if it was going to be successful, but they, in their heart of hearts, believe that they should do something different and that this should be the way things are done. And so trying to unpack that and really understand what drives somebody is, is really important. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, definitely see that in the ecosystem. Um, switching gears a little bit here, uh, you'd mentioned Armenia before, and I know you're very passionate about supporting entrepreneurs from the region. And yeah, I've been fortunate in my world to spend some time in ecosystems outside of Silicon Valley. Would love to hear more about your your work there, what you've done to support founders and and what you're looking to continue to do with the Armenian ecosystem as well. Yeah, so this really started on a personal note. My parents are both Armenian. Their parents had to, you know, move to a better place for them to be born. They were both born in Iraq, and then they moved to San Francisco right before I was born. And so I always grew up with this perspective that I was so lucky to be born somewhere that had great education, was safe, and that I had a right to work. And so as I went through my life, I kind of always had this in the back of my mind. And then when I got to Google and started working with some of these entrepreneurs that would literally just cold email me because my last name is so obviously Armenian, I started to think to myself, wow, you know, some of these founders, if they were just here in San Francisco, their chance of success would be like a million X what it is sitting there where there was no venture capital, there were no angel investors, no accelerators, nothing. And by the way, this was like 2011. So stuff was like Mm -hmm. just starting to get online in terms of the great resources that now exist. 
And so I wanted to, you know, of course I searched, like there's got to be some fun that helps international founders. Of course there wasn't. So I decided to build one myself. And so I raised uh, this fund called Hive to basically be a bridge between Armenia and Silicon Valley. And the idea would be that we would write the first check and we would be really involved with either helping them get into an accelerator or getting, uh, helping get seed funding. And then in addition to what I did is I realized, you know, it's too hard to fly all these founders to the U.S. There were visa issues and all of these things. So I actually started the first tech summit there where I would take uh, non-Armenian VCs and founders and operators from the U.S. to Armenia for three days. We would pay for the whole trip. We'd fly them over there. They'd get to meet founders. They'd do a pitch competition. They'd also get to understand like the context in which these founders are, you know, thriving in. And that's been incredible. We've done that for five years in a row. We've taken 150 people. The roster of folks is just absolutely insane. And that gives like those founders in Armenia so much hope. And then they build relationships. And these are some folks that even if you're in San Francisco, it'd be impossible to get a meeting with. And so it's really great to see the impact that that has had. Yeah, that's amazing. And thank you for sharing that. It's really inspirational. Um, just kind of last question from our side. Well, really, you know, there are a whole cadre of up and coming uh, investors and soon to be future partners and GPs. Uh, what advice would you give uh, to those who are maybe earlier in their investing career or want to become investors in the venture asset class to have, you know, uh, success in this space? So I'll start with the second question first. If you're trying to get into VC. There's three things you should be aware of that VC funds generally look for. So one is a unique network. And look, I mean, for me, I never thought having an Armenian network would be the unique network, but actually the first two deals I did at Index were Armenian founders, which is oh, wow. really cool. Yeah. yeah. So having a unique network that you really own and that you cultivate and that you can articulate why it's exciting is criteria number one. Criteria number two, you should really have a thesis about a space. And this should be very genuine, right? So oftentimes we'll interview folks and I'll say, so what are you excited about? And they'll be like, oh, I'm really excited about marketplaces. And I'm like, oh, well, like why? And then maybe they'll say something and I'll say, okay, what are your like top three startups that you like absolutely love in the space? And like, if somebody says like Uber, you're like, okay, like, come on. Like we all know, like what else? <laughs> yeah. Like what else? Yeah. So I would just say like, have an opinion about a space and a trend. You don't have to be like an expert on it, but be able to back it up with startups that you've been tracking. And then the third thing is, unfortunately, you have to be the right thing that somebody's looking for at the right time. So the third thing I would say is don't give up. Because for example, you might be an expert in digital health, but maybe that fund doesn't want to invest in digital health or already has a digital health partner. Then they don't see you as additive. So do your research and figure out like, oh, you know, I noticed that you guys have done one investment in let's say open source, but actually like, I'm really excited about open source and here are 10 more companies I would invest in. So that's advice to get into VC. Once you're in, it's a very different job, right? You have to thrive in ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people that are attracted to VC, they're typically type A, you know, sometimes OCD, really want to be clear milestones and KPIs, what mm -hmm. I have to do to get promoted. And that does not exist really in VC. So there's kind of three things that I would suggest your first year to do as a VC. One is build founder references. 
even if you didn't do the deal, oftentimes if you come in as an associate or even a principal, you'll start to attend boards with, let's say, a more senior partner. You can still add value to those founders and make those founders your reference, which could be super powerful. The second thing is try to do one deal. I know this is really hard, but even if it's a seed deal or an earlier stage deal, just try to get one under your belt. And you really have to show that you can bring the deal and have conviction and win it. And then the third thing I would say is own something strategic to your firm. And that could be anything from running an angel network to you know, um, owning a diversity initiative to owning, uh, let's say like a volunteer or team bonding thing, something that gives you access to everybody at the firm and visibility. Those are probably the three, if you had to have OKRs, those are probably the three OKRs that I would say are, are important. Awesome. Really, really thoughtful advice. Thank you. Um, anything else you'd like to share with our audience as we wrap up here? No, I would just say, you know, a lot of times people interview investors and ask what we look for, but I would also encourage all of you, especially as founders, to really think about what you want and what's best for you. And at the end of the day, I truly believe entrepreneurs are the true heroes that are really, you know, out there innovating and building and trying and failing and having persistence. And so you have a right to be as picky or do as much diligence as you want to be comfortable with the investor that you're going to pick. And the other thing I would say is don't give up. You know, that some of the best companies we backed were turned down by 70, 80, 90 investors. And, we, you know, we were lucky to have the chance to work with them. And now they've turned out to be incredible companies. And so, you know, there's an incredible network of founders that always support others. And so I'd say it's really important to reach out and get that network. But um, other than that, thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Gina. Really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for cool. your time. Yeah. Of course.